do humans build technology and code AI in their own image? And are the authors of science fiction any better? My guest and I are going to test our author for this episode by just such a rubric, and humanity may be destroyed in the process. I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. So our story is The Fundamental Nature of the Universe, and it's by one of New Wave Chinese sci-fi's fathers. I don't know if that's the right noun, I would say it's about about right. One of its three fathers, Han Song, who's up there, although not quite on Leo Tsishin's level. And our guest is also highly esteemed, it's Nathaniel Isaacson. But before those two, or at least that one guy and the other guy's story, enter the picture, we have the news the translated chinese fiction news is a new segment i'm going to try and do this on every episode along with a word of the day if i forget help me with eggs so our first news item is not exactly hot off the presses it's from august possibly it was news it was a developing story before that but basically um i've got a little article in front of me posted on simon and schuster's website uh, letting us know that they've released the cover for Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang, which is um, an English translation of her story that was previously going under the title Stray Stars, Liu Lang Xing, I think. And it's, if you look at the plot synopsis, I'll, I'll get, just give you the kind of, not the plot synopsis, the blurb. So there's a colony on Mars that kind of broke away from Earth and has pursued something like a socialistic or communistic way of living. Meanwhile, on Earth, uh, capitalism is spiraling out of control or something like that. So if you know of Ursula K. Le Guin or um, if you've read her book, The Dispossessed, you might be thinking this sounds like Hao Jingfang's take on The Dispossessed. I don't know if she wrote it with that intent, but that's certainly the immediate way that I think about this book. So yeah, that's something that will be coming out through, I guess, quite a few different publishers. I believe in the UK it's going to be Head of Zeus, but in any case, that will be coming to us in ebook and physical form next year. It's a Ken Leo translation, as one might expect, but it looks a little different. The cover is quite different from a lot of other Chinese sci-fi titles we've seen. It's certainly not branded to look like Leo Sishin's books, and it doesn't really look like Broken Stars or Invisible Planets either. So that's very interesting. Our second piece of news, this is also a Hao Jingfang. It's not really news, this is news to me. Uh, I found out that she speaks English, and there's a bunch of interviews uh, that you can find with her on YouTube. Quite a few of them were uploaded by CGTN, which is the name, or I guess the, these days, the new-ish name, I know it's been rebranded as of a few years ago, of uh, the Chinese state's English language international news channel, kind of like the Chinese equivalent of uh, RT. Russia today, but you know, obviously, just because it's um, kind of a soft power channel doesn't mean everything on there is bad. There's actually a lot of interesting stuff that they put up there, and among that, they seem to have done quite a few videos with uh, interviews with Hao Jingfang or um, panels that have Hao Jingfang on them. There's also another video uploaded by the Dialogue of Civilizations Research Institute. I haven't checked if that's a Chinese one or not, um, but there's a really interesting interview that um, Hao Jingfang does with it's i think partly about uh, the future of humanity and the rise of ai but she also talks about a project she's involved in just educating kids i think they're disadvantaged kids because as we talked about in the episode on her she does deal with um inequality and poverty for her her day job 
in her think tank or her advisory body. So yeah, um, if you want to learn more about Hong Jingfang, just head onto YouTube. There's stuff there, which it, like I, I tried that with Xia Jia and um, there's no Xia Jia interviews on, on YouTube, but there's a wealth of Hao Jingfang, so worth checking out. The next item of news, this is more recent. This isn't hot off the presses, given the meme of podcasting is not really great for that, but this is recent news. Um, so The Guardian, the British newspaper, announced its best science fiction and fantasy books list uh, for 2019, and our guy Chen Chiu Fan and his book Waste Tide are in there. I'll just read you the section on him. This is reading directly from The Guardian's uh, webpage post on the uh, said winning books. Chen Chiu Fan's Waste Tide published by Head of Zeus is Head of Zeus is set on Silicon Isle, a dumping ground for the world's the world's discarded computers and tech trash. There's an old school cyberpunk quality to the book, and though its pot plotting is a touch choppy, it's a compelling reflection on a world defined by its waste. So again, well done, Mr. Chen, well done Stan. That's very awesome. Another item of news, and you can get the sense I'm catching up with a backlog here, this might not be the norm for each episode, but just this past month, I think in late November, the 5th uh, China International Science Fiction Conference was held, and this year it was held in Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan province, and notice they were branding a lot of their uh, social media pro uh, presence with pandas, sci-fi pandas, because of course Sichuan and Chengdu are the home, or Sichuan is the home of the panda, Chengdu is the home of the panda, what do you call it, like the breeding center? Panda exclusive. Actually it's not panda exclusive because they have a red panda. Anyway, the great, the, the, the number one panda center in the world, which I have visited. So yeah, I'll just read, yeah there's a wee write-up here posted on gochengdu.cn, I'll just read the whole thing really quickly. The 5th China Chengdu International Science Fiction Conference came to a successful end on November 24th in Chengdu, witnessing the exchange of scintillating ideas on sci-fi culture and sci-fi industry at discussions and forums. The three-day event brought together about 60 guests from 14 different countries and over 300 well-known sci-fi writers, scholars, and industrial insiders from China. Industri yeah. In that should be industry. Industry insiders from China while a series of activities including forums, exhibitions, book signings and film screenings were staged, attracting more than 52,000 participants. I wonder where they got that number. Hmm. The views online of the opening ceremony and awarding ceremony for Galaxy Awards exceeded 568,000. Nice. Chengdu has made great efforts in recent years to push forward the sci-fi culture industry and has bidden? Bid. There's a couple typos here. Uh, bidden to host the 81st World World Science Fiction Convention in 2023. Dubbed as the capital of science fiction in China, Chengdu is the cradle of China's most popular sci-fi magazine. Oh, I did not know this. Science Fiction World, which has cultivated quite a few sci-fi writers like Liu Cixin, Wang Jinkang, and He Shi. Haven't heard of her He Shi before, that's interesting too. Chengdu is taking the lead in China in sci-fi related topics. Some of the best-known sci-fi novels for the sci-fi blockbuster that is a typo as well. <laughs> anyway, some of the best-known sci-fi novels like the sci-fi blockbuster The Wandering Earth and Crazy Aliens were created in Chengdu, while top-notch top animation creative teams engaging in sci-fi movies such as Nerja and 100,000 Bad Jokes have headquarters in the city. With the development, with the development of sci- that's another typo. With the development of the sci-fi industry, Chengdu is expected to achieve more fruitful results. 
in the fields of the future. Interesting phrase. And I believe that Chengdu University, one of the universities in Chengdu, has launched a science fiction studies department or course or publication. I forget which, but、um, it looks like Sotran and Chengdu might be. A little hub. They certainly seem to be being developed as a hub for Chinese sci-fi. So watch this space. Get it? Space, because sci-fi space. Okay, last news item. This is dating a few days back to, well, a few days back from recording. It'll be even later from posting this episode.、Uh, but in twenty on the on the twenty ninth of November, Paper Republic, who I've mentioned on the show many times before. That's a kind of a organization. For the promotion, I suppose, of translated Chinese fiction, the place that I link to when I need,、uh, when I want to direct listeners to info about authors and translators, just an amazing organization run by some of the best translators going.、Uh, they became a charity. I'll just read you the Facebook event、uh, page's details. It probably tells you what you want to know. So just bear in mind this event's already happened. I'm just reporting on it. I didn't attend, by the way. It was in London, a little bit.、Uh, in theory, I could have gone, but I've gone, been going north and south quite a lot. The last few months, just thought I'd save myself some money and time and not go this time around. Anyway, here's the event description. Paper Republic is now registered in the UK as a charity, and we think that's something to celebrate. If you're in the UK, we'd love for you to join us at 6:30 p.m. on Friday da, 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 to spend an evening with translators, authors, publishers, readers, and other friends of Paper Republic. And they had a raffle,、uh, goodies, drinks, balloons, all that cool stuff. And here's one for you guys.、Uh, if you can't make it, You can even you can still make a contribution through PayPal. So yeah, you can now support Paper、uh, Yes Paper Republic with your money. And they're scheming to do more events like this、um, in the United States and in China proper. And I'm hoping more in the UK because I'd love to attend one of these. And just be, I, I, we should stress these aren't just for people in the industry. These are for anyone. These are for I suppose the the most important people to get into these events. Arguably, are the readers. People who buy the fiction and read the fiction. So, if you're a fan of the show and you're anywhere near London or you have an internet connection, keep an eye on Paper Republic because I suspect you'll be seeing more cool stuff like this from them. And even if you are stuck in your house with the internet connection and you have no intention to ever leave your house except to go shopping, check out their website. It is fantastic. And that is all we've got for the news today. Time for the plugs. So、I'll, I've been yakking for so long reading the news. I'll just do these plugs quickly. So、um, if you want to contribute to this show, you can go through BuyMeACoffee.com, or to get access to some bonus content, you can go through Patreon. Links are in the show notes. Otherwise, the website's address slash Trchfic T R C H F I C that will bring you straight to me. You can get in touch with me or get sneaky updates and previews about what the show is doing via my Twitter at Angus Likes Words or the show's Instagram account at Trchfic T R C H F I C. I did a little、um, guess who the next author will be thing on there just tonight, although. By the time this comes out, that will already be over. But that gives you an idea of what I put on there for you guys, the listeners. Yeah, that's the, oh no no. There's one like one more thing in the plugs. It's Facebook. So I made a Facebook、um, group, discussion group, and a page. Check them out. I'd like to see if that's a good platform for promoting the show. It may not be. If not, that's fine. But you never know if you don't try. So all. News and all plugging aside, let's get on with the interview and listen to what Nathaniel Isaacson had to say about Han Song. 
Okay, so I've got Nathaniel Isaacson on the show or on the line with me. He's the author of Celestial Empire, the emergence. He's the author of Celestial Empire, the emergence of Chinese science fiction. So how's it going, Nathaniel? I'm doing quite well, thanks. This is、uh, the Thanksgiving week here in the United States, so the semester's sort of winding down, and I don't have a whole lot to do,、uh, at least in te- terms of my teaching duties. So a、uh, bit of bit of relaxation lately.、Uh, have you eaten the turkey yet? Ah,、uh, no, that's Thursday. So looking forward to that. Okay, you got time to gear up for that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So how are you?、Um, I'm good. Yeah, it's a、uh, lovely rainy weather outside. I'm hoping it clears up before I can walk my dog. And it's been a podcast day. I just posted the、um, the last episode, the previous episode on Feidao today. That was 19. This one will probably be 21. So、uh, <laughs> there's some time travel involved there. I'm trying to think if we're if we're like a time capsule. If, if that makes sense, <laughs> this will、see. come out well after Thanksgiving. Yeah, cool. I I look forward to hearing the one on Fade Out.、Mm, it's it's already up. You can、uh, hop to it once I hang up on you. Okay.、Um, but yeah,、uh, chit chat aside,、um, we met at the same place that I met previous guests, Liu Guanzhao and Michelle Dieter. That was the、uh, Leeds Center for New Chinese Writings Symposium on Chinese Genre Fiction. And、uh, am I right in thinking you were one of the keynote speakers? Was that your designated?、Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, keynote speaker. The very first speaker, I think, and your topic was a really interesting one. It was like an interesting angle on Chinese sci-fi. I think, from what I remember, historical and present. Can you tell the listeners a wee bit about it? Yeah,、um, I mean, I guess it was a bit of a schizophrenic talk. It's sort of an introduction to a larger project that I have, where I'm trying to trace a history of、uh, development and narratives about the Anthropocene and about、uh, the extractive industry in China.、Mm. Um, and and I'm using the figure of the train as a way to get at that.、Uh, and so the talk that I gave at the Lead Symposium sort of jumped between two unlikely places. The first one being the late. Qing Dynasty and、uh, pictorial de- depictions of trains, and then the 21st century and、uh, Liu Cixin and Han Song's depictions of transportation and development.、Um, and I guess my my argument there, I think, in a nutshell, what I was trying to get across was that during the late Qing,、um, at least prior to the Sino-Japanese War,、uh, there wasn't quite as much technophobia as has been previously assumed going on、mm. in China. And then、uh, moving into the 21st century, I am sort of in really interested in examining、uh, narratives that are about development、um, and that are both sort of critical of and positive about the sort of breakneck、uh, developmentalism at all costs、mm-hmm. uh, attitude that that seems to me to pervade in China today.、Mm. It, it occurred to me as soon as I asked this question that the listeners, unless they already know you, they don't know、uh, what your job is. So this isn't just a hobby. This study. Right. Oh no,、uh, absolutely not.、Um, I'm a an associate professor of Chinese language and literature、uh, at North Carolina State University.、Uh, through a series of very fortunate accidents, I've come to kind of、uh, focus mainly on Chinese. Science fiction, and I would say more broadly, the history of science in China, or narratives regarding science in、uh, Chinese culture.、Mm, that's cool. Um, we'll get more onto questions about you at the end, but one just popped into my head. So, since you said you're looking at narratives of science and history of science, does that bring you into contact with academics who are scientists, or are you kind of in two separate little lanes or spheres? Um. I think in some ways it does, or at least people who are、uh, more properly actual historians of science. So I think、uh, maybe they're not 
actually practicing science, but these are people who know more about science than I do. Um, and, and this may come up uh, in more detail later on with the questions. Uh, but I've, I've been looking at the ways that uh, proper science has been popularized in China. I, I'm especially interested when I get the chance in the 1950s and the Mao era right. and how science was popularized. Because that was the whole government's use of, of sci-fi that was published. That was effectively what it was for, right? To popularize yeah. science. Yeah. Um, and so one of the, you know, one of the arguments I want to make or I want to uh, help people become aware of and uh, I guess encourage others to examine more is the ways that um, we see science fiction as not existing in China during certain periods of time. But I think that really depends on how you how you define uh, science fiction. And so this popular mm -hmm. science stuff um, you know, I, I think is one way to really see how China did some really fascinating things with um, fictional for narrative forms and science combined in ways that we might not immediately think of as SF, uh, but right. but that you know seem to have elements of both of those two things there. Mm. I can say that myself as just a, a reader or or consumer, and then later a, a, a young man who did a dissertation on Chinese sci-fi. What I was what I knew about or was able to focus on was kind of determined by what existed in translation. So I knew that, uh, well, I later during my studies found out that there was Qing era sci-fi and um, I guess also Republic of China era sci-fi, Mao era sci-fi, but that's not the stuff you can easily find in English. So it's it's cool that you're studying that. Thank you. Uh, I mean, I think that's partly true. And, um, you know, I'd have to say that's true for myself too, that I have to find what's available in English. Um, but this is also, uh, I think there's a shift in how China is understanding science fiction and what they're seeing is there. So um, when I started doing this, uh, you know, a little bit more than a decade ago, I guess, was when I started really diving into this. Chinese literature scholars um, would say, oh, there's science fiction in China, um, and, and they kind of couldn't imagine it. And of course, mm. you know, nowadays that's a, sort of an, a crazy question. I think everyone right. at least knows that it exists. Uh, so, you know, you wouldn't be alone in having a hard time identifying it, because I think uh, for a long time that's been the case, that people just didn't know that it was there. Um, and, and sort of more uh, science fiction narratives in Chinese are being unearthed all the time. Right. That's a good word for it, unearthed. Um, so our story for this episode, it's it's certainly not Qing era or Mingguo or Mao era. This is a post-reform and opening up era uh, sci-fi story. Uh, so it's by Han Song, who I guess you mentioned trains earlier. People who know who know Han Song might understand why Han Song would be your guy. And the story is the fundamental nature of the universe. So it says here in my notes who wrote this story. I just answered that. As the question I wrote after that in my notes says, what's your connection to it? I've hinted at that, but can you tell us a wee bit more? Uh, well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Han Song, I'd have to say. Um, so anytime I get a chance to translate his work, uh, I'm always jumping on that opportunity. Um, I actually ended up translating this on assignment, I would say, for uh, the journal Chinese Literature Today. Mm -hmm. um, but the ideas in here, I think, really resonated for me, especially what it has to say about artificial intelligence. Um, and then I also like it as, um, you know, just a work of flash fiction. It's it's super short um, mm -hmm. and uh, very disturbing. And I, I think that's one of the things that um, actually I, I really end up enjoying about Han Song and uh in in literature more broadly, he has uh, outside of his science fiction themes. I think he has a lot of other themes that really resonate with me. Mm. I uh, I'm just working my way through Broken Stars right now, and just serendipitously last night uh, before I went to sleep, I read Submarines and uh, Salinger and the Koreans by him. And yeah, definitely 
dark dark is one way to describe what what he's writing um i was wondering about so this 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 story that you said it appears in science fiction today i know that my my uh, academic access from my masters at edinburgh napier hasn't expired so that let me get my hands on the story and i guess anyone else with a standard university academic access could probably get this story by finding the right link which i'll put in the show notes but for anyone who's not in a university is there an easy way to read this story um i mean i know this is uh chinese it's chinese literature today actually not science fiction oh, today. Sorry. sorry no that's that's fine um just thought we'd want to set that straight chinese uh today yeah. I, I mean this is it's published in basically a magazine format and i've you know since i'm the one who translated it i got a free copy of course but i mm. i think the idea here is to make this very accessible um so i'm assuming that if one were to go on amazon or something like that hopefully it's it's available and okay. um so there might be yeah a, uh a, like a commercial version as well as an academic pdf yeah i think so and then actually i'm on their website right now oh, and yeah i i mean this is behind an academic paywall i guess so that okay you may have to uh, wonder yeah i i can't say for sure i hope it's available because i know one of the uh sort of masthead missions of this journal is to make things um both uh translation and enterprise that works for the translators in terms of actually getting paid a little bit to do it mm -hmm. um and to make tra translation of chinese literature more accessible to a broader audience uh so Hopefully they're succeeding on those terms. Yeah. I'll, after we're done, I'll maybe have a look around online and see if there's a place where someone can get physical copies or e-copies. But yeah. So am I right in saying? Well, I, I know I know I'm right in saying because I have the paper in front of me. But um, you're the translator of this story, right? Yeah, I am. Yep. Did you have to work in partnership with Han Song whilst you were working on it, or was it a solo kind of thing? Um, I would say it was more of a solo kind of thing. I, I often, I, I guess sort of serendipitously because I really like his work. It seems like a lot of it ends up going towards me because, um, apparently, uh, other translators are not as interested in snatching it up, or maybe I've just somehow uh, gotten a lot of opportunities. So that's really great. Mm. Um, but it, it's often the case that when I send him my translations, uh, of his work, he usually seems to say that, uh, he likes them a lot and not not to have a whole lot of corrections. And so I'm not sure exactly what's behind that, but I think it works really well for me in kind of taking some of the pressure off. I, I actually uh, have sort of an anecdote I could share uh, oh, about please. translating another work of his, uh, The Passengers and the Creator, uh, which came out in the magazine Renditions. Um, and there's a scene in that where uh, a man is aboard an airplane with a number of other passengers and they're sort of uh, incessantly circling the 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 globe um they don't really know where they are or why they're there it seems that they've lived their whole lives out on this airplane and so they don't even really know what an airplane is um and he's looking out the window of the airplane and he sees these uh sort of tangerine colored lights blinking um and to the reader or the translator it sounds like he's looking at the the lights on the wing of the airplane um but mm. the narrator doesn't know that and so i emailed han song and i said you know is this what's going on is he seeing these lights blinking and then there was a passage later on where he's seeing these sort of uh whirls of lights below and it sounds like he's seeing traffic and uh streets and uh han song's e reply uh, via email was basically that sounds like a really interesting interpretation maybe that is what's going on <laughs> 
Uh, um, and and I, I actually kind of enjoy that, that, that I feel like I really have a freedom to let the story unfold um, as I see it. Uh, it's it sort of a, you know, a reflection of Bart and the notion of the death of the author. I, re I really don't feel like he's trying to um, interpret his own work. And, and so that's actually very nice when you're translating it. Mm. So the, the author might be dead. The, the translator, is the translator alive? There's a philosophical question. Uh, not sure. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to work that out, I guess. And I think that's really one of the, uh, wonderfully fun parts of translation is, is figuring out how much to insert myself and how much to interpret, uh, the author's work, um, and how much I, you know, adaptation I should do to make those stories work for an English language audience. Uh, there are these sort of quirks of Chinese that, um, I guess over time, I'm sort of gradually learning my own strategies for, but I, uh, you know, it, it's always interesting. I think like one thing that, that we see a lot of in Chinese are forms of repetition um, or mm. use of three or four synonyms in the same sentence uh, for an adjective, maybe. Um, and I like to try and bring some of the flavor of that across, but I don't know if that always works very well in English. You know, in English, we're taught not to be repetitive. Yeah, yeah um, you've got trade-offs to make. So yeah, I, I guess depending uh, how... To the to what extent the translator should die as well is is a yeah philosophical question as you said. Uh, yeah, I asked that question with absolutely no thought as to what it could mean. I just thought it sounded cool, but that's philosophy <laughs> for you. Uh, well, and that's my approach to a lot of things, so I appreciate it. <laughs> um, one one more question that's just popped into my head uh, before we talk about the author and the story. Um, you you were talking about this sorry what what was the name of the the story on on when everyone's on the plane uh the passengers and the creator okay so there's the passengers and the creators where the society are on a plane the one i just read submarines there's a section of society who are only in submarines and as i understand it his uh his underground and his railway novels are are they kind of the same as well uh yeah those are uh people trapped aboard subway trains or uh high speed rail uh, I, I think this is a, a very prominent theme in Han Song is mm. um, people sealed inside these various modes of transport who aren't who are um, unaware of the true nature of reality outside of of their uh, kind of sealed chamber. Mm. So the pop culture question this is prompting me to ask is: Have you seen uh, Snowpiercer, the Korean slash international Hollywood American film? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, and it's, it's eerily reminiscent of Han Sung's work. Um, mm. yeah, I, I, if you, if you like Han Sung, you absolutely should see Snowpiercer. And if you like Snowpiercer, you absolutely should read Han Sung. There you go. Um, as far as, uh, actually being able to find a copy of the passengers and the creator that's available in, uh, the edited volume, the reincarnated giant. Oh, that's on my bookshelf. Yeah, and I, I know that that is um, readily available if uh, if any readers are looking for that. Mm -hmm. Cool. I I picked that one up in the last episode, well, episode nineteen actually. Um, I've I've not read it yet. I've read one story that's in it, but I read that by PDF. But yeah, there's a treasure trove of stuff in there, even if yeah. it's a bit pricier than uh, the Ken Leo anthologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let let's charge on. Um, What's the elevator pitch or the story synopsis for the fundamental nature of the universe? 
Um, I, I don't know if this necessarily comes in the order that it comes in the plot, uh, but basically what happens in the story is that uh, an artificial intelligence program that has been uh, tasked with babysitting humanity gets bored and um, sets off, I think, what is maybe some kind of nuclear conflagration or something else like that, where it uh, sort of just releases uh, the entire arsenal at the hands of humanity and, and destroys life on planet Earth. Um, shortly after that, an alien being shows up uh, who turns out to be the uh, plenipotentiary representative of a figure called the Guardian. Um, and the Guardian is some sort of godlike figure who is in charge of uh, keeping order in the universe, apparently. Um, and as the conversation between this artificial intelligence program and the Guardian's representative goes on, we come to realize that uh, humanity actually destroys itself every 500 years uh, because it gets bored, much like the AI did, um, and that it seems that the Guardian, uh, over the course of even more millennia, has also gotten bored and just sort of decided to destroy life and then allow it to start over again. Um, and and so uh, the key word sort of in the story is ennui. Um, mm -hmm. And I we seem to be coming to find out that that is the fundamental nature of the universe is this feeling of ennui. Yeah, which maybe tells us more about Han Song than the universe, but it's an interesting conceit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think maybe it's a, a statement about the fundamental nature of humanity, perhaps, is kind of how I read the story. Mm. Although I, I've got in my notes here, so we learn that all the kind of players in this story, the Guardian, so the kind of god who lives inside the universe, or whatever it is, the alien who's the representative of the Guardian, and the humans, and even the AI inside the supercomputer, they've all got this problem with ennui. And um, it seems to be especially linked to kind of boredom. I suppose boredom is part of ennui. But if I was go if I was going for like a a children's edition with a simpler vocabulary, I would probably just swap it out for boredom. Um, yeah, I think this is a real challenge of translation, which is that um, the Chinese word that he uses actually is yan juan. Um, mm -hmm. which means something like boredom, but also being tired or wary. Um, and there are actually a few spots where I ended up using different phrases than ennui. And, mm. um, you know, I, I wanted to, as much as I could, find a single term that would translate for this feeling. And and I think uh, the, the children's version, or, or maybe even adults' version, boredom might work better or or at least just as well. I felt like mm -hmm. ennui had sort of this sense of existential angst to it. Um, yeah. Maybe that's based on my own misreading of French culture or something like that, and knowing that this is a, a French term. I, I much prefer German words nicked into English than French words. Uh, yeah, if only I had the vocabulary. Maybe I could have come up with one from German. Angst. By uh, yeah, yeah. That quite right, though, is it? Yeah, um, but it, it's getting there. And I mean, that's the fun of translation, right? It's sort of testing those out, um, seeing what, what works better and why it works better. Mm. Or, or in what ways it might work better and what ways it might not. Yeah, I've got a more kind of story-related question that follows on from the fact that all the characters or players in the story are suffering from ennui. I, I kind of buy them all. I can buy the, like, I know what humans are like. I know that we could have this problem. The alien, sure, he seems quite human. And, and a god, why not? If it's, if it's, um, if it's a living, thinking thing, sure, it might get very bored of its job but the ai 
given that it, it, it if it is just a computer and uh, it doesn't it's not bothered about time i wondered if um if there is a logic to the reason why it um makes the choice it does or if it's just han song kind of playing a, a trick for the conceit of the story what what what's your take on the ai making the decision it does um i mean i i guess i sort of read this you know if uh, if the guardian is a god figure, and, and there's this idea in the Judeo-Christian tradition anyway that we are made in God's image, right? Um, but I think you could you could sort of flip that around and say that we made God in our image, and so God gets bored as well. Um, I, I think another potential problem with AI is that we make AI in our own image, and so uh -huh. to me. Um, yeah, ideally a computer would not get bored, um, but I'm really fascinated with the ideas that the idea that we um, program AI to have some of the same foibles that human beings have, and so um, that that's why it would get bored is because it it is something that is made in our own image. Which leads us to the article you suggested as like a paired reading with this story, and it's yeah. um, it's by a sci-fi author who got name dropped. I think at least once in this sci-fi season, uh, Chen Chofan uh, mentioned him and said he's a genius, and it's probably true. Uh, but as well as being a genius, the author Ted uh, Chang writes in BuzzFeed, or he's written at least once in BuzzFeed. And although that sound, I, I guess we associate BuzzFeed with fluff and silly polls, his article in BuzzFeed is called uh, Silicon Valley is Turning into Its Own Worst Fear. So um, how would you summarize uh, the essay and the argument uh, Ted Chang's making? And third and final question about that, um, how, how would you say it relates to this Han Song story? Okay, um, well, I would, I would summarize that article uh, basically as, as um, that Ted Chang's argument is that uh, folks like Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, or the leadership of Google, um, and sort of other Silicon Valley tech moguls, are warning us about the potential negative consequences of a fully conscious artificial intelligence system. Um, but, but his argument is that they're worried about that because they, uh, too, are sort of imagining artificial intelligence in their own image. Um, and so the example he gives is you might have a computer program that was designed um, to grow strawberries in the most efficient way possible. You say this is Elon Musk's example that Ted's quoting, oh, oh. right? Uh, yeah, sorry. My apologies. I haven't... Uh, Reread this in a little while, uh -huh. um, but that the I read the... it last night. <laughs> Good, thanks. Uh, it's <laughs> helpful for me. Yeah. Um, and and so Elon Musk imagines this strawberry growing program that would sort of wipe out the entirety of humanity to just turn the planet into a giant strawberry field. And 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 Ted Jung's argument is that when we look at that, it's we're sort of imagining artificial intelligence. I guess not so much um, in the image of a human being as in the image of a corporation. Oh, Mitt um, Romney says those those are people. Yeah, um, and that that's sort of one of the interesting, uh, maybe not so random connections that I had um, that I had seen with that too. Right? Is um, and I think that that really that's what I get out of Ted Jiang's argument, even if it's not already there, which is that um, we already have these forms of artificial intelligence that are willing to put the life of the planet at risk uh, mm -hmm. for the sake of their own benefit, and those are corporations, right? And and so. Um, people like Mitt Romney um, are willing to say that corporations are people and our legal system grants all kinds of rights to corporations as if they were inv individuals. Uh, yeah. But they they actually have very few legal responsibilities um, that individuals would have. Uh, and, and so that's, um, yeah, I, I think um, it's hard for me to separate 
Ted Young's own argument and then the interesting ways that you and I are both taking this, right, with uh, what are sort of the consequences of that um, if AI is made in the image of a corporation um, and if a corporation in a certain sense is a form of artificial intelligence uh, that functions outside of the, the human beings who work for it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my um, very poor summary of Ted Jiang's article. In terms of relating that back to Han Song, I, I see uh, you know, kind of the same thing going on there is there's this this puzzle as to why this computer program would get bored and do what it does. Um, I, I actually think one of the kind of funny things for me is that, um, you know, if the computer has destroyed humanity because it was bored, now what's it going to do? Uh, it, you know, mm -hmm. kind of reminds me of other things I might do to relieve boredom. Um, and so I've I've managed to take care of feeling bored for that few minutes of time or whatever but then there's just you know i'm still bored and i still have nothing to do so like if you're on an airplane um, and you don't really want to eat the food but you just go ahead and eat it anyway because it's something to do um and then that you know that experience is over and you're you're just even more bored um so i, mm -hmm. I kind of wonder what the ai is going to do next um but yeah you know i sort of see this as perhaps one of the things he's hinting at is is that uh humanity has made this ai that that uh, functions in a way that is uh, perhaps too similar to the ways that human beings think. Mm. Also, I think if you if you close read the story because it's it's written in uh, first person from the the AI's the narrator. He's for for a, a robot that or a intelligence that should be fairly neutral and objective. It seems to judge the humans um, in its narration and its conversation with the alien. It doesn't seem to think very much of us, or at least what we've become. No, it doesn't. Um, and I mean, it's it's capable of deception too, right? Which is supposed mm -hmm. to be kind of one of these hallmarks of of uh, true artificial intelligence, according to like the Turing test and whatnot. That if it it can deceive others and it has sort of this this theory of mind for this alien civilization that it's visiting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think uh, you know it, it's only because he tells us that it's an AI that we know that it's it's definitely not written to sound like a stereotypical robot, right? And Again, going off the idea of like having a neutral, you're having your AI have a neutral point of view. Going off what you're you're saying, Ted Chang saying about how corporations have have become these kind of self-driving things. So right now in the UK, we have a national election coming up, and the leader for the main opposition party, Labour, is Jeremy Corbyn, and we're being told by all sorts of commentators how you know insane and ideological he is, and yet if you look at the way the laws are set up to allow large businesses to operate that's to me that's the crazy stuff that's the alien stuff but we <laughs> things don't get framed in that way so it, it you know when you when i when you or me or lots of people read uh, ted chang's article and he describes how insane the behavior some of these companies would be if we considered them people it's it, that's common sense it's you know that's the common sense thing yeah yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like uh, American politics, I guess we're kind of glad to see ourselves reflected um, in in some other situations, um, mm. however depressing that may be. You know, I, I think uh, over here, Donald Trump has managed to phrase things as um, being sort of a working class warrior. Um, and, and, you know, the, the folks who are really in charge are the corporations, and that's who he has benefited in the long run. So, yeah, you know, a very similar situation in the end, I would say. Yeah, it's weird times. It is very weird times. Um, 
not segueing at all, uh, the order of questions I was going to do is now a little bit jumbled. <laughs> Sorry about uh, that. Oh, it's not your fault. It's my fault. Um, it's not not that it's a problem. So there's quite a lot of ideas in this wee story that's short enough. Like you said, we could call it flash fiction. And the idea that tickled me the most wasn't actually anything to do with the the main plot. I loved the idea of the guardian who is some sort of all power or omnipotent or almost omnipotent thinking thing that's governing the universe but i think in the story it says it's not a god and it's not outside the universe and that just set me off thinking like okay so does this thing have a physical presence how hands-on or hands-off is it after we find out that if it stops kind of monitoring things entropy will increase and effectively that'll be the end for all all life I don't necessarily have a question. I just that really tickles me. I just wonder if that if that concept was exciting to you or if there's other things in the story that are more like scratch your itch things to be to do with the AI. Um I I mean yeah, I, I find the figure of the guardian really interesting and um I guess I agree with your argument that it it's not exactly godly because it's not outside of the universe. Um but it, it does seem very godlike, and I think one of the things that really actually interests me about Chinese science fiction more broadly um, is that on the public front, there's a the the um, most sci-fi authors I would say are very clear that they are atheists and that China is an atheist country. But mm. you see a lot of religious themes going on in their work. Um, in Chen Xiufan's Waste Tide is centered all around all kinds of religious rituals, right? And it's not really yeah. clear um, if those are meant to be actually effective uh, in kind of spiritual terms or if those are just effective ways for human beings to cope with the world around them. Uh, Liu Cixin, I think, also has a lot of themes that to me seem religious and even potentially Christian. Uh, so yeah, right. I, I think... Um, I share your interest in that idea that there are these kind of pseudo-religious ideas um, that we have to work out, um, I think, on kind of an individual level for our own personal reading of the story. But there's certainly a lot of that there, you know, in this story and Chinese sci-fi more broadly. Mm. Um, yeah, when you mentioned Liu Cixin, two things immediately jump out at me. One's, um, one is the in Three Body, I think the people who become the... I forget the name of their organization, but the people on Earth who kind of betray humanity and are working for the Trisolarans, the alien invaders, they refer to, I guess, the whole alien race as the Lord, at least in the English translation. I, I don't know how they're referred to in the original Chinese. And the other one's the short story, Taking Care of God, where it almost seems like a parody of the, the Christ, Geo-Christian God, where it's like all these little individual... What old men with big white beards come down from the heavens and again i don't know if that could be like lao tzu or something if, if he fits that description as well but to me as a western reader reading the english one it felt like it was at least playing with that old kind of idea of what god might look like if he was a person yeah yeah absolutely um yeah i, th I think there are a lot of cults kind of that that uh, spring up in Liu Cixin's work um and uh, you know I think a, a major theme in three body to me is the idea of sacrifice right and and so I think you uh, in one sense you can read that as um kind of a a very communist or sort of socialist realist type theme where someone is willing to give up their body for the good of the collective body mm -hmm. uh, but that also sounds you know uh, it sounds very Christian um yeah yeah really fascinating stuff Mm -hmm. 
yeah so if anyone who's listening has thoughts on this or has read other uh chinese sci-fi that fits this pattern zap me a message um on the twitter angus likes words or there's the instagram at trisha fick is or even my email <laughs> or my or my facebook wherever you can hunt me down and find me it's always interesting to hear from people um i think i did i have one more question for you that's about the story do 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 uh, not particularly uh, i do have a kind of a publishing type question so obviously you you help bring this story into english in chinese literature today do you know where it began in its original language in publication? Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I know that I have it in a collection. I, I assume that being as short as this did is it uh, potentially appeared in Kohuan Shijia, but I don't I don't want to say. Um, That's science yeah, fiction. I'm not world, sure. Right? Yeah. That's something we could mention that I've not mentioned in this whole sci-fi season is the um, the top magazines in China for sci-fi. So I know Kluhuan Shijie, uh, Science Fiction World, is one of them. And I, I know there are others that are on the tip of my tongue, but uh, it's escaping me. Are you familiar with these kind of magazine-type publications? I know that uh, Wani is another one where at least some of Han Song's early work showed up. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, beyond that, I have to say that uh, I'm, I'm not too sure right now of what the best places are for finding Chinese science fiction mm. um, in, in, in the original language. Usually I'm getting it um, via the little collected volumes of uh, sort of the annual volumes of the best sci-fi for a given year. Mm. So you just used a word I, I recognize there. You said ke shui. So there's uh-huh. ke huan and ke shui. So since, since you're a scholar of this stuff, can you tell listeners who've not heard both the two terms contrasted, where they both come from, what the difference uh, is? Sure, yeah. Ke shui uh, means science, basically, right? Just um, mm. in, in the sense that we use the word science. Ke huan is actually short for ke shui huan xiang xiao shuo, uh, mm. which means sort of scientific fantasy fiction um and that that word or that um that abbreviation kohuan came into the language in the 1950s uh when chinese science fiction was often modeled on soviet science fiction mm-hmm. um, and i'm going to absolutely mangle the yes. russian for this um, but i i think it's the nauknaya fantastica or something like that which also basically is a a term uh from russian meaning um, you know, scientific fantasy fiction. Nagnaya Fantastica. Well, yeah. any Russian or Russian-speaking listeners, <laughs> feel free to zap in a correct pronunciation of that. I think um, some we in in episode nineteen. Again, it's out as of today. There's some time travel wrangling in, involved there, but there was a, a Polish word uh, popped up there, and again. Neither me or my guest are Polish speakers, but it is cool to see um, intersections between Chinese sci-fi and other sci-fi, non-English language sci-fi worlds. Yeah. Maybe I was maybe I was getting mixed up with that word Lushun created for um, science fiction. 
Uh, I, well, I, I mean, um, so around the turn of the 20th century, actually, rather than Kohan, the term would have been Kohan学小说, um, right. which, which is a more, really a more direct translation of the word science fiction. Um, Xiaoshuo is something like fiction or um, novel, the right. novel. Um, and, and so at that time, actually before, you know, the, the genre designation science fiction is really prominent in English in the Japanese. Uh, sorry, in the Chinese language context, you have this being used as a genre category, although that's, um, you know, it's really pretty fluid. And there are a lot of other things you might also call science fiction. And as far as I know, that sort of um, made its way over into Chinese uh, through Japanese originally, where you had, you know, the same four characters, uh, but kagaku shiosetsu, uh, just, you know, science novels or science fiction and kagaku bungaku sort of starting to become an idea uh, where where meiji japan was also looking at uh, writing science fiction or writing that was about science and adventure and all these other things as sort of a, a tool of national modernization okay that's really interesting um i know i keep mentioning various listeners but um, i'm trying to do that more um I know that recently some Japanese uh, people, or at least people in Japan who speak Japanese, um, found the show, and I, I'm, I see from my tracking I'm getting more plays from there. So if any of you guys are listening and you hear Nathaniel talking about this kind of, what would you call it, interaction or exchange or whatever between Japanese sci-fi and Chinese, and if you guys have thoughts, again, please let me know. It's infinitely interesting and you don't have to be an expert but if you have anything to say please do if you don't that's fine that's that little waffle done shall we move on to some i know we, we already did some kind of translation related questions but i have some more so shall we move on to those yeah that sounds great cool let me see oh yes here, here's a big one so this uh, story the english version is written in the present tense and i know that if you're if we're if we're putting things simply uh, Mandarin Chinese doesn't have tenses. So I'm curious, um, what made you pick English present tense for your translation? Um, I Generally speaking, I would say I've, I've come to find that that works for me. Mm. Um, I, I think it especially works in, in terms of a lot of Han Song's fiction in that what's often going on is there's sort of, um, as the narrative unfolds, you're, you're figuring out more about what's going on, um, but neither the narrator nor the characters nor the reader are really able to get um, a to become fully appraised of the, you know, the reality of the situation. And so I feel like present tense works for that sense that this is unfolding before all of us at the same time. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's the main reason I would go with that. That's really interesting. Um, so I know that as far as I'm aware, there's no Hansong novels that exist in English. Am I right in thinking that? Um, yeah, as far as I'm aware as well. So my question is, if you were to translate one of his novels, like DTA Underground, for example, would you still do the whole thing in present tense or would you be a bit more conventional and go for past tense? Um, I feel like I would probably go for present tense. I mean, I think another reason for that is that it's it's fairly common to have um, these little bits of flashback that occur within um, I guess any story, but it seems like I've especially noticed that going on in Han Song, who I've translated translated quite a bit of, right. um, and so that it makes it easier to make a break with something that um, clearly is being related as an event that 
that somehow feeds into what's going on now, but happened um, prior to the narrative. That's really interesting. Um, I don't, as far as I'm aware, I can't think of any Chinese sci-fi I've read in present tense. Um, but I, I'll keep an extra eye out for that now because it's an interesting, or any indeed any translated stuff. It's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about before I read this little this little piece. Um, so ne- next technical question. Um, I was looking for any possibly tricky or interesting words. So we already talked a bit about ennui, uh, but there's another word. It only it only appears once, but it's an it's just an absolute pleasure to say in English because it's got so many p's. Um, plenipotentiary. Uh, how did you choose that one, and what do you know which or do you recall which Chinese word it came from? Um, I, I have to confess, I don't, I don't remember which Chinese word it came from. Mm. Um, but I, I think, uh, really high on my list of joys of translation and, and probably one of the things that's most time consuming is working with the thesaurus or uh, the particular, uh, volume that I have is called the synonym finder. Um, and mm. it's by far the most well-worn book on my bookshelf. Um, and so I, I, you know, really enjoy the process, I guess, of, um, You'll you'll read the Chinese and you know what's going on and sort of what you know uh, basic terms you might use to translate the story um, and then it's a question of finding that word that really works well um, and I you know I can't remember exactly if uh, this is just what came up in in doing sort of a basic uh, word search on something like plecodict uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if anyone out there knows what that is but it's um to me I think and to most people working um, in Chinese studies it's a phone smartphone dictionary um and it's kind of the gold standard for dictionaries especially because you can download just entire bookshelves worth of dictionaries onto it um Mm. so i'm sure there was a plecodict search on there at some point and then probably after that a lot of you know digging through a thesaurus uh yeah and that's uh to my the best of my recollection that's how i got to that to plenipotentiary Mm. so just for listeners who are scratching their heads um in in the story the plenipotentiary is the alien who's serving as a representative for the guardian, the kind of god thing that's running the universe. And I've just got the uh, Google's given me the Oxford definition. So plenipotentiary can be a noun or it can be an adjective. Uh, the noun means a person, especially a diplomat, invested with the full power of independent action on behalf of their government, typically in a foreign country. And the adjective, according to the dictionary, says having full power to take an independent action. It's, it's a word I had to look up. Um, but it's a very cool word. And I think in this day and age, I don't begrudge it too much when uh, I have to look up a word in a story because my smartphone's never more than arm's length away and there's nothing wrong with expanding your vocabulary. Um, the other time Chinese translated Chinese sci-fi has done this to me that I can think of is uh, Ken Liu and Topolect, a word he purposely uses instead of dialect. I don't know how many people would have known that word before coming across it in a book. Uh, I didn't, but again, it's it's a handy um, handy thing to add to one's vocabulary. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I mean, I feel like both of those words are um, not commonly used, uh, but I I love to joke around when I teach courses uh, about sort of, you know. Um, breaking a word apart into its Latin roots or its Greek roots. Um, and I, I, it seems pretty clear that like with topo, you know, uh, 
topo is in topos or is in maps uh, or territories mm. and lect having something to do with languages, right? And so we can kind of, we can see what's going on there with plenipotentiary. It, it's got something to do with potency, mm. uh, seems a fair assumption, right? And so we can, uh, we can kind of, I, I feel like we can kind of get there. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't feel like we hear the word topolect very often outside of uh, that that very specific meaning that Ken Liu is is putting forth there in um in the introduction to waste tide. Um, mm. But he he could be the one that kind of brings it back into or brings it into mainstream use. You never know. Yeah, and I mean I think it's absolutely fair um, both in literary translation and in academic translation, uh, as you were saying, to expect that readers will have a smartphone at hand um, and you can look up terms you don't know, or you can you know look up uh, a, a historical allusion or something like that pretty easily. So I feel like if you can find it on Wikipedia uh, or an online dictionary, it's it's fair game as long as you're not having to spend you know every single paragraph looking something up yeah you don't want to push it uh, i have another an anecdote about using my phone for just something like that uh, it was reading uh, jin yong's uh, legend of the condor heroes the the translated one from maclehose did you did you read that no it's uh, on the shelf something i'm hoping to get to at some point we'll see yeah. when that's how i feel about the enormous sequels <laughs> um but there's a there's a, a story from history one of the characters tells about because there's a there's a semi mythical horse that's in the story and there's a a legend a character tells about how um, I think the Han Chinese dynasty acquired these horses from a far west kingdom I forget the name maybe I think it was the Han it might have been the Tang anyway um, and it seemed very far fetched and it kind of was vague about. Well, I think the country was called Fergana, it was called in the text. And uh -huh. it sounded like these might have been a Persian or Indian or maybe some other group of people, maybe a group of people who lived in that region who are not there anymore. So I Googled it and it was in fact a Greek city, one of the leftovers from Alexander's empire. So it was a, a case in history, a real case of a, a, a Chinese, an imperial Chinese army sieging a Greek city, initially being pushed back and then coming back and finishing the job and, and taking their horses. And that's prompted me to put a history book about said topic, the Greeks in Asia, in like Asia proper, on my Christmas list. So I'll hopefully be reading that next year. But yeah, that's the power of the smartphone. Winning yeah, game. yeah. Not that's just word check, but fact yeah. check too. Yeah, I, I mean, reading is just this never-ending rabbit hole, right? Um, where, yeah. yeah, a lot of um, unread books in its wake. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, that's the only book on the list, just because there's so much stuff on my bookshelf. <laughs> but yeah, um, other technical questions. Yeah, so although I already asked you about uh, Ennui, um, I, I'm trying to remind myself to, on every episode, do a word of the day. Uh, where I badger my guest on how to say a new word or a word, new word for me anyway in Mandarin. So what, what, what again was the word that you got Ennui from? Ah, uh, Yan Juan. Yan Juan. Okay. Yeah, Yan Juan. And it's slightly different meaning from Ennui. Is what was it more related to? Uh weariness or weariness. boredom or mm. or. Uh, yeah, the feeling of being tired. Okay. So um, you then, know, we were talking uh, about uh, uh, tense in Chinese. Um, mm. The the word category, right, can 
can sort of slip around a lot in Chinese as well. And I think that's one of the fascinating things is that something can be um, an adjective or a noun, you know, that can be mm. uh, to be bored uh, or it can be boredom, right, as well. And, and so that's uh, another interesting set of decisions one has to make in translating. Right. Cool. So, yen zhen, anyway, slash exhaustion, boredom. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so, my last set of questions, they're questions about you or questions about your endeavors or your interests. So, uh, first one, listeners who have been listening to every episode will recognize this one by now. Uh, when did you first really connect with sci-fi? Not, not just Chinese sci-fi, but any sci-fi. Um, I would say that was probably around the time I was 11 or 12. And in, um, I guess, two different ways, mainly. One was uh, Philip K. Dick. I really got into it. Right. Um, and I, I guess the probably on the timeline, um, somewhere in there, I and mean, this is back when uh, VHS tapes were a thing. And so friends and I, you know, would stay the night at each other's houses and we'd ride our bicycles over to the local video store. Um, and find something to watch. And I can remember renting uh, Blade Runner and also renting Terry Gilliam's Brazil, uh, ah. which I would say is kind of a sci-fi dystopia. And and at the end of those, just being um, completely blown away, however old I was. Um, and Brazil doesn't really have much to do with Philip K. Dick, but uh, somewhere around then also discovering Philip K. Dick and really loving him. The other way that I think I got into sci-fi uh, around that time was um, through the cyberpunk role-playing game. Oh. Um, and, you know, friends and I, I think we um, we would go out and buy any kind of Dungeon Master's Guide or role-playing game rule book we could find. And usually we would uh, kind of create the characters and maybe get through one campaign and then pick up something else. But I remember being really into, into sort of the visual culture surrounding uh, cyberpunk in its early versions. Mm -hmm. um, then the other, the other thing that I think was going on around the same time and in kind of a similar uh, very analog mode of discovery was finding manga and anime at the local comic book store um, and just being uh, completely blown away by the visual culture of that because, um, you know, there was nothing else around, uh, at least in the town that I grew up in, that, that in any way resembled what we would find down in this little basement comic book shop uh, with things no. like uh, Appleseed and Akira and all of those. Uh, so that that's, uh, yeah, I would say that's sort of a short version of how I initially connected with science fiction. So the, the visuals of some some young lads riding on bikes in a group and playing role playing games it just makes me wonder have you seen any of uh, Stranger Things like the first episode? Yeah, I have. Um, I mean, it's 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 interesting. It's very reminiscent of my childhood. I would say, aside from um, you know government uh, funded monster projects coming to life. Yeah, you avoided um, that one. That's but good. but yeah, the role playing games and riding around on uh, little BMX bikes absolutely big part of my childhood. Sweet. The follow-up question, again, listeners who've listened to the rest of the sci-fi season will, will know what this one is. Uh, what was the first Chinese sci-fi that you read, if you can remember? Um, the Actually, yeah, I, I remember this pretty vividly. The first Chinese science fiction uh, novel I read would have been Xin Shi Tou Ji, or The New Story of the Stone. Um, oh. And that's that's a... 1905 novel uh, by Wu Jianren, um, and one of the earliest works of Chinese science fiction. Um, and I think that at the time I read it, even I wasn't really identifying it as science fiction. Uh, the second half of the novel 
takes place in this futuristic Chinese utopia. The first half of the novel is is set in semi-colonial Shanghai. Um, and it, it was, uh, I read, I had to read that for a graduate seminar and really didn't know what to make of it. I think uh, at the time I could kind of barely read it because it's late Qing fiction. Um, mm. and, and eventually had this epiphany that uh, I, had, I had been reading uh, a book on it by my professor, my advisor, Theodore Huters, um, and, and sort of realized the only thing I had to say about it that he hadn't said was that actually this is sci-fi, right? Um, and mm. sort of just this, that was my moment anyway of discovery that, that there really was sci-fi in China. And if it's new story of the stone, does that mean it's a riff on the classic uh, story of the stone slash dream of the red chamber slash dream of red mansions? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's one of many sequels, um, and there's this sort of uh, self-deprecating commentary at the beginning from the author where he talks about how I know this is just one more sequel uh, to the you know dream of the red chamber story of the stone, um, but here we go anyway. Um, mm. Here's here's my take on it. That's interesting. Um, it re- reminded me a wee bit when you're saying it's it has like a utopian China. The one story I know that has something, or maybe one or two, I know that have something like that. There's there's one that Xia Jia describes in her essay at the start of Invisible Planets. I think this the story is just called Xin Zhongguo, New China. Of course, written a long time before Mao Zedong's New China came about. But it, it's I think it it shows you a new Shanghai. Um, however many years in the future where there's a, what's the word I'm looking for accurately enough a world expo has been held there and uh, certain certain things have been established like equality of the sexes which is arg- arguably there today um, and it's I think it's supposed to be a liberal society that's maybe missing but um, that was the one story I hadn't I haven't read but I know where it depicts a utopian China is that anything like the one in New Story of the Stone or are they a bit different? Um, th- there are a striking number of similarities. And um, for me, one of the most interesting ones is that actually there's a, a World Expo uh, type event going on at the end of New Story of the Stone as well. Um, there's a real fascination with that in um, turn of the 20th century Chinese culture. Yeah. Honestly, I didn't. I hadn't heard of World Expos before I lived in Shanghai. Maybe since I live in such a small city or I don't know. I, have they come back in recent years or decades or have they always been a thing? Do you know? Um, I mean, well, I don't know if they've always been a thing. I, I, I think they were really big in the kind of turn of the 20th century and maybe up through like the 1930s or so, I guess. Mm. Um, I suppose I, they were interrupted a bit by World War One, Two, and the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah, that would that would make sense. Um, and I, I think that in, I think outside of China, they're seen as being kind of passe. Um, although I know that there, there've been a few world expos in Japan as well. Um, mm. And there's, there are some old expo grounds in Osaka from, I think two different world expos. I'm not exactly sure when, um, but they're, yeah, certainly a, a really big thing in, in uh, contemporary China. Right. There you go. Well, if there's any listeners who knows more about world expos, um, I've already given the contact details a few times. Um, it's an interesting topic. Um, going back a wee bit to Qing fiction, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit more about your book, Celestial Empire? Because I'm pretty sure it concerns this stuff. Um, yeah, so uh, that book is about the emergence of Chinese science fiction at the turn of the 20th century, um, and it's sort of ex- it's a uh, I guess in very broad strokes, I would say it's an examination of how colonialism, uh, empire, and Orientalism 
made their way into or figured in uh, late Qing Dynasty Chinese science fiction. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, and I I had um, originally sort of hoped for that to cover uh, the entire 20th century, but it, it turned out that I only really go into about uh, four different novels and a couple of short stories in there. Um, right. But... But yeah, that's uh, sort of an examination of, of where exactly Chinese science fiction came from and of its relationship to uh, discourses of imperialism. Right. And that book's completely available on Amazon and similar places, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm happy to say fairly affordable. Yeah. Well, it's very important for an academic book because some of the funniest things I've seen on Amazon are some of the prices that, well, not obscure, but... Um, non-commercial academic books sometimes it's a very simple looking book and the price is like if you want it it's 200 300 pounds or i guess like 400 500 dollars yeah yeah um i mean one of the things i've been trying to teach myself recently is what exactly the economics are of that and i mm. i can't say i understand it <laughs> um, i suppose there's one book in supply and <laughs> no competition i suppose yeah yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess it it goes to a library, and and mm. they're able to pay that. But, yeah, I think I think that's yeah. it. It's uh, it's not really intended for individual consumers, but it's there for anyone who hates libraries. Yeah, interesting. Um, so do you have any new work or new books underway? Uh, well, I I'm not sure exactly how long the new book is going to take, but I'm hoping at some point in the next few years to have um a study out, as I was saying, about uh, the figure of the train um, and its relationship to narratives of development in modern China. Mm. Um, in in print, um, and unfortunately probably behind an academic wall, I have an article on um, another genre uh, that I was sort of alluding to earlier, and this idea that there are these popular science genres in China that I find very fascinating, especially during the late 1950s. Um, and this one is called Xiangsheng. Uh, basically mm. means science crosstalk. And so these are these little comic dialogues that were made to teach people um, about popular science. And when they emerged, were especially used to teach people uh, concepts about health and hygiene. Um, mm. So things like washing your hands um, or disposing of human waste properly might come up. Uh, but anyway, that that article uh, is titled Locating Koxue Xiangsheng, Science Crosstalk, in Relation to the Selective Tradition of Chinese Science Fiction. Um, and that appeared in the journal Osiris. Mm, cool. Um, do you have Do you have any upcoming work on Han Song? Um, I I have a um a set of translations uh of his that should be coming out soon, and the, that's with uh, a press called Dark Moon Books, and that's probably in the next year or so that we should have. Uh, a volume with a number of stories of Han Song's and then some short articles uh, about him, as well as a couple of uh, little essays by by him. And we're hoping to get one previously unpublished in Chinese work from him that we can then publish in English. So there'll be something there for English language readers that uh, not even Chinese readers would have. Um, we're not, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to talk that up too much because we're still not sure if, if all of that'll work out, but um, right. in the next year that should be coming out. Okay. Um, and, and then the ultimate chapter of the book proposal that I have going, will be looking at uh, Han Song. Um, and we were sort of talking about how he has all these narratives of people trapped in um, trains and planes uh, and other vehicles uh, mm. and, and how that figures into sort of ideas about modernity in China. Mm. Actually, this is a good spot for me to sneak in a question. 
Um, I'm guessing you've had a fair bit of experience on uh, the different modes of public transport in China. Uh, w- I mean, I could talk about this stuff for a very long time. Do you have any thoughts on like the high-speed rail network or the metro or even the buses? Uh, I mean, I've, I've been traveling to and have lived in China on and off over the last 20 years. Um, and yeah, it's just absolutely fascinating to see that transformation. Um, you know, when the first time I lived in Beijing, there were two subway lines there. Uh, just that number one, the the sort of loop line and the the little red line that that went across kind of the the bottom of Tiananmen Square. Um, and that's grown into the I think it's either the largest or the second largest subway system in the world. And um, yeah. the first first has got to be Shanghai, right? So it, it's it's going to just be Chinese cities trading places for that mm. for a while, I think. Funny you should mention that. So this this was a few years ago now. So the the stats might be out of date, but I think say 2016, 17, I was being an intern with that Shanghai magazine, and there was a story I was uh, asked to write about the new lines that. Um, Sounds like I'm, I was doing it at the behest of the government. It wasn't that. But um, we were doing a little piece on some new lines that were being rolled out in the Shanghai metro system. And we had some stats. I think even before these lines were being added, the longest subway system per by kilometers of track in the world was already Shanghai. But um, it was number two for the number of passengers. Beijing was number one for the number of passengers and number two for the kilometers of track. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I'm okay. sure it's much the same now. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I find that kind of fascinating. Um, it, and it's sort of a form of magic to me as well. You know, I said I grew up riding a BMX bike kind of around my neighborhood. Definitely no subway system in the city I lived in. Um, and so the idea to me of going underground at one point, um, and I don't have to pay all that much attention, and I'm just sort of whisked across the city, and I pop up out of the ground at this other point in space, yeah. uh, is is science fictional if not magical mm-hmm. um and you know on the on a sort of national scale i've also seen uh the development of the high-speed rail system um and it's you know it's it's quite enviable uh just seeing how fast you can get around and remembering you know it used to take uh 12 15 hours to get from shanghai to beijing say and now it's a five-hour trip um, and incredibly affordable so just, mm. just you know absolutely wonderful I have to say, like in the UK, the, the um, London Underground, I quite like the UK train system for all its flaws. I love riding the train, and I think our buses are good. But like in in Scotland, well, the all of the UK has three undergrounds. There's London one, that's the only like really sizable one. I think there's another English city that has one. I think it might be Newcastle, and then Glasgow in my native Scotland's got one, and it's a circular line. And my experience of using it has always been it's just more efficient to get the bus. Um, and there there were plans years ago, I think, under our last Labour government, which is a very long time ago now, to build a high-speed line and for, for starting at London. So for a Scottish person, that's amazing because logically it should be like a backbone for all of Britain. But the plan initially was to only build it to Birmingham, so barely halfway up England. Oh, really? Yeah, insane. And then the plan got extended to maybe go up to like Manchester or all the way up to the north of England, which... You know, that's a little better, but the plan has been kicked back and canned by the different governments that have uh, kind of gone in and out of, uh, of of Westminster and 10 Downing Street. And if you compare that with the rapid progress that's unfolding in China, I mean, granted, it's a bigger country. They, mo- they have a greater need of um, fast rail. 
but it's the the contrast is almost hilarious when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there was um, you know similar. There are similar pushes to have trains going from say Washington D.C. to New York City. Well, that really makes or, sense. Yeah, or, or uh, Los Angeles to San Francisco to have high speed rail. Um, it, it makes you almost envious of an authoritarian state. Uh, because it, there's just so little chance of that happening in the United States. Yeah, you know all the the various property lines you have to go through, and and uh, the train can only curve so many times uh, in order to maintain the speed that it needs. And and so it just seems very unlikely in the United States that we're going to have a high speed rail anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is something I could talk about more comparing UK rail with mainland European rail, but it's I think it's too off topic. So I'll, I'll spare everyone. <laughs> Um, next question about yourself. Um, what are you reading just now? And are there any other books, Chinese or not Chinese, or concerned with China, not concerned with China, uh, that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Uh, a lot of what I've been reading these past few months uh, is is work I would categorize as uh, sinophone fiction. Uh, so mm. meaning work that is originally written in Chinese, but is not necessarily uh, from mainland China or not necessarily written by someone uh, whose first or main language is Mandarin Chinese. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So, so uh, one author that I'd like to, I guess I would recommend who I'm rereading, but I think is really worth rereading um, and, and fits in that category of uh, very strange stuff is uh, Ng Kim Chu. Uh, that's N-G-K-I-M-C-H-E-W. And he has a, a set of short stories in translation called Slow Boat to China. Um, okay. just, just some great uh, very strange, great stuff from uh, a Malaysian Chinese author. Uh, right. The other book that I read recently and my students really disliked, but I think uh, <laughs> maybe people who are a little more keen on literature would enjoy uh, is Wu Mingyi's The Stolen Bicycle. I think I might uh, have heard of this. Yes, yeah, I, I think the Chinese title is Shi Qie de Dan but that's available in translation as well. And it's a, a sort of historical novel from Taiwan. Um, yeah. So we were, we were just talking about our sort of uh, mutual obsession with uh, high-speed rail and subways. I think another obsession that I have is actually with bicycles and, and uh, Wu Mingyi's story feeds that. Um, it's also like a really fascinating meditation to me on uh, history and, and the relationship of objects to history. And, and so I think it was maybe a bit over the heads of undergraduate students. Uh, but for me anyway, it was just a, a really great novel and one that I'm sort of still puzzling over mm. um, and it 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 hit me in one of those ways where you don't i don't quite get all of it right away and in a way that makes me feel like there's really something to it that i'll i'll end up figuring out as time goes on and as i continue to meditate on it that's um something i've still not done is read any uh translated chinese stuff from taiwan i own one book uh, orphan of asia somewhere on my shelf but i've not read it but I'm planning at some time on the podcast to do San Mao. Although I think she's, I don't know if she wrote prose. I don't know if it's all poetry. Um, I, I thought she did sort of travelogues too, but I'm actually, right. you know, have to confess my ignorance on that. That sounds right. Um, yeah. Actually, another question, going, going back to stuff on tracks again, when you mentioned subways, it popped into my head. Have you been to the uh, Subway Museum in Shanghai? Uh, no, I haven't. When did that open? Uh, it's been open for a while, I think, but it's kind of tucked away. It's just near the Koreatown, quite west all the ways, and it's it's okay. It's not amazing, and 
I guess it it would be all right for yourself. Uh, a, a fair bit of it is only in Chinese. But yes, I was just thinking if if I was uh, Han Song's agent, I would get him to do some kind of an event in there. I think that would be yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. No, I I mean uh, I'm doing a research trip. Uh, this summer to Shanghai and Beijing, and so Subway oh, Museum uh, fits right in for for research work. Oh, there you go. It's um, it's pretty well documented, but yeah, it's uh, it's kind of in not that central, so it would take a little bit of time set aside to get there. But it's pretty small, so you wouldn't be traipsing around it all day. Cool. And it's a little bit of a government showpiece, but I think that's to be expected. Yeah. That's me all out of questions. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to say or plug before we bid you farewell. Uh, no, not really. I, I'm at Twitter at RealNIsaacson, but I don't think I'm terribly active there. I'm trying to get better on self-promotion. Uh, okay. So, you know, if you're just interested in following me uh, personally, I'm there. I'm also Nathaniel Isaacson on Facebook. I'd, I'd be glad to hear from any listeners or uh, continue to share ideas with folks mm. uh, outside of the podcast if they want to um, get in touch. Yeah. And I think anyone who's got academic access, just pop Nathaniel's name into your uh, uni's library and some, some cool stuff will pop up, that's for sure, right? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say so. I, I certainly enjoy getting to write it. There you go. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and you're welcome back anytime. Not the next episode, obviously, that would be strange, but you are welcome <laughs> back anytime. Uh, glad to be on, on the podcast. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, have a nice day in the States. I forgot whereabouts in the States you are. North Carolina. Thank you. Have a a good day in North Carolina. Yeah. Have a great evening over there in the UK. Yep. And happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. Thank you again so much to Nathaniel for being a guest on the show. It really was a great chat we had. Um, Further to what we were talking about, about access to Chinese literature today, if you fancy reading Uh, the sci-fi issue that's got um, the fundamental nature of the universe and other um, Nathaniel Isaacson translated Hansong stories and some cool uh, little essays on Chinese sci-fi. To get the individual issue, or indeed any individual issue, the uh, CLT website recommends that you contact them by email and presumably you can sort something out. I would guess that in uh, British money, GBP, you'd be paying £9 for a single issue for print. Uh, because the options, the purchasing options for a subscription, a print subscription that you be, would get you their next two um, issues because it's a bi-yearly journal, that would cost you £18, but that wouldn't, I presume, give you access to back issues. Uh, for online only a subscription, which I guess would give you access to all their stuff, uh, it's £106, quite a lot of money. And for print online, 125, so 106 plus that 18. Well, let's do some maths here. No, that's 19, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Strange that they'd add that one extra pound. I guess they wanted to round it up to a multiple of five. Um, so, yeah, your best option might be contacting them by email, or, of course, if you're with the university, using academic access or finding a way to. Um, get some academic access using your own ingenuity. But yeah, I'll do the plugs now. Speaking of ingenuity, I have to apply my own to um, help promote the show. So we have Facebook platforms now, a page that you can like and a discussion group that you can join. I'm still kind of seeing if people want to use that. 
by all means, give it a shot. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you would rather give your thoughts one-on-one -on -one to myself, um, the good place to do that is our Twitter and Instagram, at Trichofic for Instagram. Twitter, just my own one, at Angus Likes Words. Um, you can uh, share your thoughts in a, a mention, a DM, all those fun millennial things. There are also great channels to get previews on where I'm going with the next few episodes and also just to see my random thoughts or on Instagram often I re kind of repost or put in my moments cool books and things that I see. Yeah, that's the social media. If you want to support the show financially, there's Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon. I haven't just recorded a very cool uh, Patreon episode, like a bonus thing. Uh, it was just me having a chat via Skype with our man Dylan Levi King. So if you enjoyed the episode I did with him, there'll be another one up on the Patreon. And for one-off contributions, there's Buy Me A Coffee. Uh, links to both those platforms will be in the show notes. Of course, last but not least, the most important thing is to spread the word. Uh, of course, tell your dog, but do also tell the god who resides within the universe and watches over, maintaining a manageable level of entropy. Also, the AI who daily is at risk of murdering you just because of its own ennui. Tell the AI you could save your own life. Tell also your friends. Uh, it's really important if, if <laughs> to me that if you know someone who might get something out of this show, it's urgent that you tell them. And on that note, 再见.